I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Twenty sixteen is the Flight ninety three election. Charge the cockpit or you die. You may die anyway. You or the leader of your party may make it into the cockpit and not know how to fly or land the plane. There are no guarantees, except for one. If you don't try, death is certain. This was the opening line of a famous essay written in twenty sixteen by Michael Anton who served as a national security official under President Trump. Mr. Anton joins me now to discuss what has changed since the infamous Flight 93 election of 2016. Do you think that Joe Biden is as dangerous as you thought Hillary Clinton would be as president in 2016? I don't think there's much of a difference. Uh, They represent the same basic thing which is just complete progressive left-wing technocratic dominance of the government and of society. In a way, you could argue this either way, that he's less dangerous because he's less intelligent, less ruthlessly ambitious and capable. On the other hand, you could argue that he's more dangerous because he's such an empty vessel that he just lets the people who really run things do what they want without any kind of check or decision-making power at the top. I don't actually know which one of those two things is truer, uh, even though I know or I believe that both of those observations are true. Now, you wrote this striking essay, the Flight 93 essay, uh, just before the 2016 election. And you made this metaphor with that flight, that infamous flight on 9-11. Do you think it really was uh, a matter of life and death for America, that election? Well, I mean, life and death, literally, but I didn't say life and death, literally. Obviously, America is still here. There are still people here, no matter what. But what was it, life and death for the old American republic? Yeah, I did believe that. I do believe that. I think it's dying or it may already be dead. I don't know. That's that's a harder, you know, as a political, political science is not medical science. Medical science, at least until recently, could tell you if a body is alive or dead. Given the corruption of the sciences, we'll see. Soon we're going to probably find that fuzzed up the same way we no longer can tell male from female. But in any case, the question was whether or not the American Republic, the constitutional order, the old way of governing itself could survive. Uh, and I really laugh when people, uh, I still get chided constantly by critics and enemies and others who say, 
oh, what hyperbole, you know, I, and I, I laugh at that because I think everything that I said in that essay has been amply vindicated by events and continues to be vindicated by events. Can you give viewers, you know, particularly from a British perspective, an idea of the stakes of that election? 2016 election, I mean, it was a kind of a last chance for Americans to save a constitutional order that had been corrupted a long time ago and had been ebbing away, was whether or not uh, a constitutional order that had been sapped, being sapped for really a, a century at that point, but had also had come under uh, uh, exceptional attack in the eight years of the Obama administration. And I don't mean to make this partisan. Both parties are to blame, although the Democrats are much more to blame than the Republicans. I just thought that a Hillary election, and almost nobody except Donald Trump in 2020 ever loses re-election anymore. I just thought a Hillary election would mean a 16 straight years of progressive dominance uh, designed to undercut the old order and that we would never get it back. Can you give us some examples of what you think was at threat for conservatives? I mean, just the main example is elections don't determine the course of the American government anymore. We hold them. I'm not even sure why we hold them, because the purpose of an election is to change the government and change the direction of policy. But it doesn't really matter who people vote for or who wins. The same policies prevail either way and the same the government maintains its same course. So we're supposed to have a bunch of enumerated rights, right, that are listed in the Constitution. I mean, there's two parts to the Constitution, you might say. The first, uh, the the core articles that came out of the uh, 1787 convention and then the various amendments, right? So we have government that has enumerated powers. Certain branches are only supposed to do certain things and are never supposed to do other things. And then there are enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. These are supposed to be natural rights endowed by nature and nature's God, to use language from the Declaration of Independence, but that are then codified into law. There's almost no respect in which the actual documents of the American founding and of of the American constitution, and I know Britain does not have a written constitution, but we do. There's almost no respect in which it operates the way the words say it is supposed to operate. Was Trump's presidency a failure or a success? You know, I was asked this yesterday. uh, As a college professor who has to give grades, I grade it an I. It's an incomplete, right? Which is not a failure and it's not, neither is it a success. So it's a partial success. He got a lot of what he wanted to do done. He didn't get all of what he wanted to do done for a lot of reasons, in part because he didn't get a second term, at least not yet, Uh, in part because of mistakes and misjudgments in staffing and hiring, hire people he shouldn't have hired, he didn't hire people he should have hired, and so on and so forth. There were a lot of people in the government working against him, in part because of the concerted opposition of the bureaucracy, which in America is not quite as strong as the British civil service, but it's close to as strong as the British civil service. And if elected leaders or appointed officials want to do something that the bureaucracy does not want them to do, it simply will not get done. And they called themselves the resistance, comparing themselves, you know, to the French who stood up to the Nazis as if standing up to an elected president is somehow the equivalent of standing up to a tyrant who has invaded and conquered and subjugated your country. That's what we face in this country. And that's why I have to give the former president an incomplete. So some of it was his fault, the misjudgments on personnel, the lack of experience in electoral politics, but some of it was the the opposition he faced, which would have been hard for anyone to overcome, even had they made zero mistakes and appointed 100% of the right people. Do you expect, and is Trump capable of changing his leadership style to be more effective in a second term? 
when he's up against this so-called resistance within the government and he is appointing these people with perhaps not good judgment or who are working against him, do you think that he can learn from those mistakes and, and be more effective the next time around? I think he's definitely already learned from the mistakes. Just listen to him talk and, and read what he says. He's, he, he, he's learned. The, the more difficult question will be, has he, is even the most perfect learning going to be enough to overcome the resistance next time, which will be much stronger than it was the first time? And I think that's the, the, the big question. Uh, and I have to pronounce myself a skeptic, although I'd love to be a witness to the attempt to try to overcome that resistance with better personnel, with a focused commitment to all the right policies from day one. It still will be very, very, very hard. The same way, you know, I assume that if, if there were such a, you know, a dramatically reformist prime minister were to come to power in Britain, you know, the civil service and the BBC and everybody in the media, maybe not the Telegraph, but everybody else, every power center in the society would unite against that person and just say, they wouldn't ever say it openly, but the message would be clear. We're not going to let you do what you want to do and what the people told you. Now, I mean, the Brexit is a great example. It took four years to do Brexit. And I'm told, you mentioned NatCon as we started, by people while I was in Britain, that in a way, it formally happened, but it hasn't happened because all kinds of details that should have been implemented, right, are being held up by the civil service. So there are all sorts of things that Britain, EU regulations and so on, that Britain still submits to, even though formally is out of the European Union, because the civil service insists. And this, this in a way, is part of the reason that's effective, I'm told, is that the reality of it is kept hidden from people. It's not just domestic uh, opposition to conservative policies. If you look at the Liz Trust premiership last year, you had the IMF, you had global um, institutions basically come in and try and prevent these tax cuts from taking place. Now, you can make an argument as to whether those policies were good for the economy or whatever, but the way that she was ousted seems to me rather undemocratic in terms of how these global institutions intervened. Um, so maybe, I mean, Britain obviously is a much smaller country, much less economic power. Perhaps Trump, because America has such might with the dollar, can overcome these international forces. Perhaps, but they're very, very strong. And again, domestically, he, if there is a second Trump administration, uh, everything will be against him, right? Uh, every institution really in, in the United States will be against him, including at least half of his own political party. Not half of the voters in his political party who will be for him. I expect he will win the primary. I expect he'll command in the primaries at least half of the total vote and probably much more than that, probably two thirds or higher. Um, but the problem that he, one problem among many that he will face is that the leadership of his party, its elected officials, especially its leading officials in the Senate, in the House, the most governors, um, its biggest donors, um, its uh, you know leading intellectuals and scholars, and so on, will all will all or most of them be against him, just as they were the last time. I know that you like to cite history in your speeches and in your writing, and I just wondered if you had any comparisons between pre President Trump and pre previous presidents or even previous world leaders? Who do you think is most suitable? Was Trump a great president? Was he a Reagan? Was he a Teddy Roosevelt? What, can you give us uh, some examples? I mean, to, I, to me, he reminds me in a sense of, of you know, populist leaders from the past um, of the left and right, going all the way back, you might even say, to the Gracchi brothers uh, in the second century BC in Rome. Um, but in, in many other ways, I, there aren't historical parallels that are all that clear. I, you mentioned my writing. I would point anyone watching this to just Google 
an essay I wrote for the new criterion called Unprecedented, in which I list out for about 6,000 or more words, all the ways in which our current predicament doesn't have a historical precedent, at least that I could, none that I could find. And I'm, I'm not a historian, and I may not be the most well-versed person in, uh, on the historical topics in the world, but I'm above average in my knowledge of, of history, ancient history through the medieval world, through the early modern world, certainly in Europe and in America and in the West. And I know something about Asia and other parts of the world too. And there are innumerate ways in which I can find no precedent for what's going on in uh, the world and especially in Europe and America right now. Are there certain leaders throughout history that you think Trump and other populists should learn from in terms of um, strategy, in terms of their effectiveness, in terms of principle, uh, ideology. So maybe you could say, look at Lenin and how he managed, you know, how he formed the revolution in Russia or, or whoever. Well, uh, you can always learn something from from great statesmen, whether it's Churchill, Lincoln, uh, George Washington, uh, you know, Fabius Maximus, Camillus, you name it. Um, but again, I, I return to the the unprecedented nature. It's you know, Harry Truman, uh, President Truman once said that uh, he found the most useful book, the most personally comforting, but also useful in guiding him through politics was Plutarch's Parallel Lives, right? And I, far be it for me as, you know, someone who studies the classics to recommend against reading Plutarch. However, if you read Plutarch looking for more direct advice as to what to do against this administrative board that is controlling most of the West, which has a, both a domestic and an international component, as you as you pointed out, as I completely agree with, you're not going to find lessons. So we're in a way in a completely uncharted situation. And a statesman who can find his way out of that into a better, you know, a better world, a, a, a sunnier, broad sunlit uplands, to quote Churchill again, right, is going to have to do something new and unprecedented uh, for which there there's no recipe in a book. Now, Trump's legacy has come under scrutiny during this early stages of the primaries campaign. People, conservatives are deciding, you know, was Trump really a conservative? Did he deliver conservative policies? You might have DeSantis supporters who say, well, no, he didn't. He appointed Jared Kushner. He massively spent, you know, he spent billions and billions and billions of, uh, of US dollars. Um, he failed to secure the border. He didn't build the wall. Uh, he put, you know, he had Anthony Fauci there, the COVID lockdowns. Um, he pardoned criminals and, and, and was very much involved in that reform movement. So do you believe that Trump's presidency really was conservative? Uh, in many ways, it was. This is a, that's a, there's a complicated answer to this question, right? Because it, it, it operates on many layers, okay? First of all, you have to distinguish between different kinds of conservatism. There is a conservatism kind of frozen in amber from the Reagan era, which is all about tax cuts and deregulation and peace through strength and military spending. Not that I'm against any of those things. And on certain levels, Trump delivered on those, right? He did spend more on the military. He did uh, reduce some of the procurement gaps that had accumulated in prior administrations. Um, he did deliver a big tax cut. He did deliver quite a lot of deregulation, according to the, you know, the, so according to the let's say the Republican agenda of the second half of the 20th century, it was quite conservative. There's another respect in which Trump wasn't conservative in that sense, but was conservative in an older sense, right? 
I disagree. I, I mean, I, of course, I have to agree if you're going to say he didn't build the wall and define that as there is no complete wall, but he built many sections of the wall. He did ramp up border enforcement dramatically, and both from his actions and from his rhetoric and the policies of his administration, illegal border crossings went down a great deal over the last four years and are now way back up because the world has gotten the message that America is open again. So that, you could argue, is a conservative victory, even though it doesn't jive with what official conservatism of the think tanks and the magazines, which is much more pro-immigration or just pro-open borders, pro-laxity favors. Um, his trade policy, it runs afoul of official 80s, 90s, you know, American Enterprise Institute conservatism, which is very dogmatic and free trade. But it harkens back to an older conservatism, which was much more pro-tariff, pro-protection pro-American industry, even if that has distortive effects on the market. So I, I don't think it's necessarily fair or even all that illuminating to just judge Trump by the question, was he conservative or not? Uh, I think there are many ways in which he was, some good and some bad. There are many ways, in my view, good in which he deviated from conservatism as understood in Washington over the last, let's say, generation or so, right? Um, but I think those deviations were necessary and useful for America, and I'd like to see more of them rather than a simple return to the Reagan formula, which was necessary and great for 1980 or 1984, but doesn't meet the real urgencies of 2024. After the Second World War in Britain, we lost our empire and the rise of a new uh, ideology or um, belief was that we were in decline and that was obviously true materially we got you know as i said we lost those colonies and the economy crashed and it was you know on, on all those metrics it was a disaster and this was declinism and you've had conservatives in the uk be extremely pessimistic about the future of our nation for, for many many years and i read your writing and i think you know i can see some of those similarities in, in that declinism from the 70s 80s 90s from those conservatives in britain and, and with what you're saying today about how america has declined uh, particularly since 1988 do you think that trump in some way corrected that decline I think that his administration was definitely an attempt to correct that decline. I mean, remember, his slogan was make America great again. The word again doesn't just suggest it announces that there has been a decline and we want to reverse it and we want to get our position back. So it was an attempt. It began the correction. It certainly hasn't fulfilled. I think it's it, to to reverse the correction entirely would be a generational project. It would take more than one administration. It would take at least 12 straight years of successful Trumpist policymaking from the top. Uh, it's successful in the sense that it would actually have to be implemented in the teeth of opposition. And I, I think even that probably wouldn't do it, but it would point us all in the right direction and you know, give us hope and demonstrate that things are not inevitable. It, uh, the, the situation that America is in now or that Britain was in a generation ago, I don't believe had to happen or necessarily was inevitable. I do believe and I'm sorry to say to any British listener who hears this and gets offended that the maintenance of the empire at its you know peak extent, whenever that was, 1914, 1925, was not going to last forever, right? That was a moment in history that was extraordinary in many ways and, and had to be temporary, right? But Britain is still a country of, what, 70 million people with an extraordinarily high GDP, both in the aggregate and per capita, that has a great deal of economic power. Uh, a great deal of international influence and, and, and could be stronger than it is now 
just as the United States could be stronger than it is now if it didn't have these domestic problems that are mostly self-imposed and that we are prevented from correcting, not so much by some kind of inevitable force, but by domestic political factions that just refuse to allow any progress to be made. That's our, but I, I would say that that's both of our country's largest problems is, is internal. So you don't see America's position as being similar to that Britain faced post Second World War. In other words, you don't think American decline is inevitable? Well, there are ways in which it's similar and there are ways in which it's different, right? The British Empire was much more integral to British, to Britain's global position and economic power than uh, America's is now. I mean, some people like to refer to an American empire. I've always been leery of that phrase because America is, is, with the, you know, very small exceptions like Guam and the Philippines and Cuba for a time being, the United States has never uh, controlled territory directly in a way that the British Empire did for hundreds of years. Um, uh, so, however, we did assume global responsibilities similar to those that Britain had maintained for, let's say, the century or so, or you could even argue almost a century and a half since, let's say, 1815 until 1945, the United States assumed many of those responsibilities as part of its role in. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In being the leader of the West during the Cold War. And so there is a similarity in that uh, I would agree that the United States can't. I, I agree with those critics of America's post-Cold War foreign policy who say the United States could afford to and, in fact, would be better off if it scaled back some of its international commitments and ambitions. That isn't to say that if it retreated entirely from the world and, and became isolationist, whatever that word even really means. Right. But if it did so voluntarily as a kind of rational retrenchment. Uh, I think that would make, make a lot of sense the same way, you know, uh, I always hate to sound like I'm lecturing foreigners because why should you listen to me? And I feel free not to listen to me. Like I don't, I don't live in your country and I'm not a citizen or a subject of King Charles. And so there's really no point for you to listen to me. However, a, a country with 70 million people with 
the industries that you have, the history that you have, the culture, the literature, the GDP, all of the assets that you have could be a very strong country, uh, even without an empire, which I forgot who said it. Um, it wasn't one of the really famous British writers. Anyway, you might remember the phrase was written around 1880 or 90. He said the British Empire was acquired in a fit of absence of mind, right? You have to kind of think of the empire as in a way, almost a fluke, right? Not something that was ever intended to happen and that couldn't last forever. But without it, that doesn't mean that Britain is an inconsequential country. Britain is still going to be one of the world's most important countries. I remember watching a, a Tucker Carlson a monologue about the British Empire um, a, f- a couple of years ago, and he was talking about the great monuments and buildings that we created. And, and I, think he's, I think he went to India and he wrote a whole essay about this. So some, there's some train station, maybe in Delhi yeah. or something. That, that's just... I think he was talking about the, the great Edward Lutton's, apologies if I get this, pronounce his name wrong, architects, uh, the train station in Calcutta. He Calcutta, also built yeah. a lot. He also built a lot of or designed a lot of the administrative buildings in Delhi for the British Empire that are still used by the Indian government to this day. And the comparison he was making was between that and America's contribution to Afghanistan and the amount of money that they spent on those wars since the the early 2000s. I mean, do you think that that's an apt comparison? Well, I mean... Even more unfavorable comparison for us is you look at what the United States built in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they're these gigantic, ugly, bunker-like, hyper-secure embassies that do nothing for anyone. And then in the Afghan case, we just abandoned. So it cost, I forgot what it cost. It was somewhere in the billions of dollars. It's an eyesore. It did no good for anyone, whereas the British left behind these buildings that are as great as any monument from the ancient world that are still beautiful to look at and that are still in use. So... It doesn't make us look great, to be honest. What is Conservatism Inc.? It's the official network aggregation of the legacy think tanks and magazines uh, and institutions that defined conservatism that were, and some of them are like, so I've been on the record as criticizing the Heritage Foundation in the past, so I may as well praise it guardedly now. That is to say, it has a new president, a new-ish. He's been around for a year, a year and a half. He's taking it in new directions that I think are positive directions. I'm talking about Kevin Roberts, who was there at NatCon in the UK and spoke. We interviewed him. Right. Which is a great thing. Like the older Heritage Foundation would have looked at something like national conservatism and held its nose and said, well, we can't have anything to do with that because it's not, you know, properly Reagan-esque and nationalism is bad. Right. So Heritage is, I think, going in a positive direction. There's still a lot of legacy institutions, however, that are not. Um, and that, I, you know, in a way, it almost doesn't matter because they become kind of irrelevant. Like nobody listens to National Review or what it says anymore. It just doesn't matter. And that's an that's a real big change. You know, this is a magazine founded by the very famous William F. Buckley Jr. in 1955 that absolutely dominated the American right for at least half a century. Um, and it's just kind of become squishier and more liberal and hemming and hawing and uninteresting now and out of step with the time. So Conservatism Inc. was not a term coined by me. I believe it was coined by the paleoconservative scholar Paul Gottfried 20 years ago, maybe even longer than 20 years ago, when Conservatism Inc. was a very powerful force. It's still powerful in the sense that it has a lot of money, but the money doesn't buy them much influence. You know, things like the Edmund Burke Foundation, which hosted national conservatism, which is brand new. I mean, it's what, five years old at most. Right. Uh, is got more influence now than these legacy institutions that have 10 times the budget and, you know, five or 10 times the, the 
track record or you know period of existence. What British viewers might be interested to know is just how much money there is in American conservatism. You know, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, as you say, in think tanks, magazines, um, you know, ed- academic institutions, that sort of thing. Um, do you think that with the rise of the MAGA movement, the rise of the Trump movement, you've also seen various people who have taken advantage of that for the money as well? One phrase might be grifter. And people say that there is this new MAGA Inc. and Trump Inc. that mirrors conservatism Inc. Yeah, there, there isn't that I know of. I mean, first of all, there's only a handful of institutions that have sprung up specifically around MAGA. And most of them are actually fairly threadbare and pretty good. So I can name like America, American Compass, which actually perhaps predates Trump. I don't know, but it's trying to push economics in a more nationalist populist direction, right? Out of step with the old tax cut deregulation conservative, though not, not, not just implacably hostile to it, but willing to look beyond it. Uh, A a magazine or there's a square bound journal called American Affairs, which is definitely, um, it, it definitely is new. I think it started publishing in 2017 and isn't exactly aligned with Trump per se, but is pushing different economic and trade policies that are much Trumpier or much more in keeping with the kind of the Trump agenda than with the old Reagan agenda. I suppose there's one or two large lavishly fund institutions that you might question um, as, as being part of MAGA, you know, a new MAGA Inc. Uh, but there's nothing like the network extent uh aggregate number of personnel or funding on the MAGA side as there is on the on the legacy side. And I think, look, most of the MAGA stuff if you, that, that one might classify as grifty is less attached to think tanks and stuff like that. And then it is just in the campaign world right now. And one wonders how long that's going to last um, or, you know, if, even if it can outlast Trump himself, because even the best case scenario for Trump is he wins in 2024 and then constitutionally he can only serve one term. Right. And then what happens after 2028? Right. I, I, there's not that many with, with a couple of exceptions. There are not roots put down uh, of these institutions like the Heritage Foundation, which was you know, founded in the early 70s to kind of give institutional expression to movement conservatism that had only been an intellectual movement up to that point. Right. And then really thrived in the 80s with the Reagan administration and so on. I mean, we'll see if, if any of these MAGA institutions end up having that kind of longevity. Uh, but. It's just too early to tell at this point. Now, you were in the UK recently for NatCon. So this is the National Conservatism Conference. Lots of conservative thinkers and speakers were making speeches. You saw the Home Secretary there, Suella Braveman. And you may have got a sense that some British conservatives feel a bit doomed about the state of their own conservative party. They look back on the last 13 years of conservative government and they ask, what have conservatives achieved that is conservative? Perhaps the answer is Brexit to a small extent, although, as you said earlier, there, there, are, there are obviously problems in terms of how they've delivered that. Now, I know that you're of the firm belief that conservatives in America have achieved very little, if nothing, in the last 30 years. Can you just explain and expand on why you think that that's happened? Well, let's see. 30 years would take us back to 1994. And in fact, conservatism did deliver some big successes in the 90s, mostly at the state and municipal level, though, and some at the federal level. <clears throat> Um, Americans, you may not realize this because American cities are in horrible trouble now, but there was a period in the 70s and 80s when they were very dangerous and dirty and disorderly, and they were cleaned up in the 1990s and were very livable places. It, it was in part, I, I don't know, I may sound out of touch, uh, but 
I enjoyed London in part because it just was clean and safe and I could walk around without any more. Now, granted, I barely left the West End, right? So maybe there are places I could go where I wouldn't feel so comfortable. But, you know, hey, um, you know, I, I didn't even take public transportation, not because I was afraid of it, but because it was just so pleasant to walk. So anyway, that was a huge conservative success in the 90s to get these cities cleaned up that are now sliding headlong backward into disorder and mayhem. Welfare reform, another great conservative success of the 90s, at first achieved at the state and local level, and then at the federal level, because of conservative dominance in the House of Representatives and forcing President Clinton to tack to the center to secure his reelection in uh, 1996. So we, we, we have some very serious successes. The, there, more recently, though, I would say since probably the 2000s, the record is a lot more negative for conservatism. What seemed like conservative successes in the early 2000s, mostly in foreign policy and the response to 9-11, turns out to have had long-term bad consequences for conservatism. Um, you know, endless military commitments that stretched and sapped the U.S. military without producing victory and uh, that cost enormous amounts of money, not to mention soldiers' lives and limbs, and also the surveillance state that was built uh, in part as a response to 9-11 that many liber libertarian conservatives warned us about and their fears have proved unfortunately true. And I think conservatives are having a bit of buyer's remorse about these reforms that many of them and us, I should say, because I would have to put myself in that category, supported in the early 2000s that are now uh, being being turned against us. And then you point to conservatism's failures on immigration throughout all of this period uh, on out outsourcing the decline of manufacturing, getting in league with big business over all kinds of issues that that uh, lined the pockets or the bottom lines of big companies and, and, and the coastal elites and did nothing for middle America. Yeah, I would say, if not the last 30 years, certainly the last 20 years, 25 years, conservatism in America has not achieved much. And much of what it has achieved has been counterproductive for conservative ends. Let's talk a bit about the solutions to that. Do you think that conservatives should be revolutionary? And is that an oxymoron? Well, and it can't possibly be an oxymoron for, for someone like me who studied the American Revolution, right? Because the American Revolution was fought in the name of eternal principles and, and, and you know, the laws of nature and nature's God. There's nothing more conservatism, more conservative than looking up to fundamental and permanent things such as nature and nature's God. And yet it was a revolutionary act. I think conservatives definitely need to be revolutionary, at least in the prosaic or narrow sense of in their approach to electoral politics and their approach to thinking about policy that, you know, the kind of uh, incrementalism and adherence to the old strategy, the old songbook that won us victories in the 1980s and 90s is not going to cut it anymore. What do you think of the idea of American secession and that sort of red states separating from blue states? This is another thing that I've written about and talked about. I, I, I think the pressure for it may build if the you know woke regime that runs the federal government, most state governments and all the institutions does not back off. I've just been rereading over the last couple of days. I'm something of a Machiavelli buff or scholar. And I've been rereading one of his lesser known books that people don't read as much called The Florentine Histories. And he describes how, why were the parties and divisions in Florence so much worse than they were even in Rome or in Athens, which were, you know, suffered from horrible party divisions. 
And he gives a couple of reasons, but one of them is he said that unlike in Rome, in which the popular party only sought to share honors with the nobles, in Florence, the popular party wished to rule by itself without any participation from the nobility. And everybody who, and then the popular party having achieved that divided amongst itself, and every party that sought to govern sought to completely eliminate its opposition and rule alone. And that's the situation we have in the United States now, although no one will admit it. And if I say it, I'll be denounced for it. But that's really the truth, is that there's a progressive party that thinks that it is the sole um, determinant of what is just and legitimate. Opposition is inherently immoral, should not exist. They get to define what it is, and what it is is, is some kind of little narrow mini objection that, that, that doesn't um, offer any kind of fundamental alternative. And everything else is anti-democratic and fascist and Nazi and racist and needs to be stamped out. And I think if they continue on that path, they will push more and more, um, let us say, you know, red people, people in red states and red communities who just don't believe in their agenda to think along those lines. My own more practical proposal is that, well, before we, you know, actually start the process of breaking up the United States, not that the federal government would ever allow that willingly, um, why don't we try something more modest and allow for a reorganization of cities, states, and counties at the local level, keeping the United States as it is intact? But is there any reason why, for instance, um, all of eastern Oregon, which is very rural, very conservative, very red, if you will, is ruled by one by Portland, essentially. There are, there are many cases in the United States where one or a couple at most cities, right, um, which have largest populations, but geographically very small, simply completely dominate the rest of a state in the state legislature. And so people in other parts of the state just have no say over how they're governed at all. Why don't we try to address that first? So right now there's a movement, for instance, Eastern Oregon counties have voted, they would like to join the state of Idaho. Now it's a symbolic vote at this point. We don't know where it yet may go, but I think just a reorganization at the state, county, city level might do a lot to reduce the temperature of American politics and allow more of a federalistic live and let live spirit, if that is the people who really run the country are willing to live and let live. And my my unfortunately, my view is based on experience and observation is that they're not. They have shown no willingness to allow that. More generally, do you think that we need to tone down the debate in America? Do you think people need to get a sense of perspective to stop being so involved in reading these terrible, pessimistic news stories every day, watching the Fox News or whatever? Do you think people need to take a step back and realize actually things aren't quite as bad as, uh, as they seem? Well, look, I, I, I admit that I, I am saying this as someone who has taken a side in this debate, but... Uh, my answer to that question is no, in the sense that, look, all that means in the current context of the United States is the red side or the conservative side or the Republican side doing unilateral disarmament and getting steamrolled, right? Because they're not going to, I would agree if everybody would back off, everybody chill out, right? Washington, New York, LA, San Francisco, stop trying to impose your hyper progressive up to the minute worldview on everyone without exception. Uh, you know, cool it, but they're not going to cool it. And so the only way we can stop it or slow it down or protect ourselves is by fighting back. So I, I know I, I would say that's ultimately bad advice unless it's heated by everyone and it's not going to be heated by both sides equally. Now, I'm going to ask a very vulgar question, so I apologize for this. But who's your man, DeSantis or Trump? I, you know, I'm a college professor. And so um, I don't have to endorse people and no one cares about my endorsement. Um 
I, I, I see great strengths in both of them. I think Ron DeSantis is the best governor in America uh, with a proven track record of actually implementing a conservative agenda, getting it passed, getting it legislatively passed, but also implementing it in the bureaucracies. And I think President Trump is owed enormous credit for the way he broke a stale partisan divide and blew into the open issues that absolutely needed to be heard. Um, I expect, and I'm also, I mean, you know, I, I, I have to be grateful to President Trump. He hired me and gave me a great opportunity and a chance to serve in government. Um, so I expect he's going to win the nomination. That's the easiest prediction in the world to make. All you got to do is look at the polling and see that it's about 50 to 20 right now. Anything can change, but look, he's a former president. He's still the dominant figure in American politics and the American political consciousness. And he still has really the unswerving loyalty of some enormous number, probably at least 50 million Americans that I think will be hard to overcome. If either one of them, Trump or DeSantis, is the nominee, I will happily vote for them. And I can't really say that about any of the other candidates running. Although I kind of like Vivek Ramsway, if I have his name correct. correct. He's not going to win the nomination, but at least he's saying things that I agree with. So you were a speechwriter to Rupert Murdoch. Have you seen the, the series Succession? And do you think that it's an accurate portrayal of the Murdochs? I've seen like an episode and a half on a plane. So I'm not really the right person to ask about that. I mean, it was so obviously about the Murdochs in the sense that, you know, there's four kids. Well, I mean, Rupert actually has six, but the two at that time were very young. One from a first marriage who isn't interested in the business, although they made him male in the series and it's actually his actual oldest child is female. Three who are interested in the business, you know, one who's obviously sort of supposed to be Lachlan, one who's supposed to be Elizabeth, one who's supposed to be like... It was just so much of a Romana clef that, you know, uh, I, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, from what I understand it now, there have been ups and downs and so forth. But Lachlan is and he are getting along great and running the business together. And James is the one who is out of the business at the moment. Um, and you know, I was just kind of on the periphery and I was only there for about three years. So it's not like I saw the the inner work. And in fact, when I got there. Very quickly after I got there, Lachlan quit for the first time. I think this was in 2005. It was like around July. So I got there and I met him and I worked with him on a couple of things. And he was, I, I gather from just from press reports, you know, frustrated that he felt being he was being undercut by his father and so on and so forth. And he just decided he was like 35 at the time or maybe I was 35 and he was younger even probably. And he just decided who needs it. And he went back to Australia, but at some point they patched it up and he, you know, went back and joined, rejoined the company. Final question is 2024, another flight 93 election. Yes. Unfortunately, uh, all elections between now and the reform of the United States are flight 93 elections. Or you could say on the other hand, the more depressing pessimistic answer is, if you want to say it's not a flight 93 election, it would be because elections don't matter anymore. The Republic is already dead. Elections are not going to fix anything and change the government. So who cares? Uh, I leave to viewers to decide which of those answers they prefer. Neither one is very comforting. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 